Good morning, everybody. It's a it's a joy to be here. It truly is. It's a honor and a privilege I clearly don't deserve, but I'm enthusiastic about it. I um, I'll just remind you that Judy used to say, "I have no common sense," and so I just want to warn you about that. Now, she was, I disagree. I have plenty. I just can't find it all the time. So bear with me. But no, it's a joy. I'm gonna introduce our topic today. Uh, it's a big, big subject. Uh, and this is just a brief survey of the attributes of God. Um, and again, I am really grateful to be here with you guys. This is a subject for today that's going to extend to next Sunday, but it's not the type of subject you can ever fully master for all of eternity. So you know, if you've heard this, if this is repetitive, um, enjoy. I mean, it's the mother of all learning to repeat, right? So you can't hear or discuss the essence of God, his attributes, with the usual posture of having completed that as a task or covering it as a theological goal that you can accomplish. This is different. Um, we will not ever finish We will not ever get to the bottom of who God really is. And there have been a lot of people in Scripture, you can see this throughout, that make uh, reference to this. One of it, it's a little bit uh, tangential for our topic, and it's sort of in a rhetorical form, but Zophar poses to Job a question in Job 11, verses 7 to 9. He says this, Can you find out the deep things of God. Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. It's deeper than Sheol. What can you know? And so I find that this topic is, of course, it's designed by God to time where we are now. It's, it's very timely. Uh, for us at this point. And so as we worship through Romans and Isaiah on Wednesday night, we need to continually nurture and think about and pray through and study with a holy awe of holy God. Um, and if we don't, we'll just naturally slide into just having a intellectual exercise and getting fed um, plain and simple. And we'll f- risk forgetting the miracle of our status. It's a miracle that we are in Christ. It's a miracle that we can stand before the most holy God. Um, A.W. Pink says this in his book, The Attributes of God, from which I hijacked a lot of this material. Uh, we've been studying it for a long time. He says this, The foundation of all true knowledge of God must be a clear mental apprehension of his perfections as revealed in Holy Scripture. An unknown God can neither be trusted, served, nor worshipped. And so I'll pose these rhetorical questions to you. Why is trusting him important? Why is that important to you? Why is serving him important? Why is knowing him important to you? Why is worshipping him important? So again, this is, this is an incredibly timely topic for us as we enter into Romans 9 through 11. Remember, Nick 
reminded us when he started in his introduction that God is God and he needs to make no apology for who he is. So it's incumbent on us to take a deep dive into as much as we can learn about God. He is very loving and he's very fierce. And um, I like this, like, you know, from C.S. Lewis and Narnia. Everybody's got the famous quote by Lucy, right? That's everybody's favorite, but not mine. I have a better quote for this today. It's from The Last Battle, and Tyrion says this. He's not a tame lion. How should we know what he would do? We have to study the Word of God, right? We have to take a, a really intense look in Scripture. And so um, I think I'll just I'll read a little bit from, from this book. This liturgy is appropriate. I'll read a little bit of it to you. This is from Every Moment Holy. And I think it captures where we need to be. It says this, O children of the living God, what is your father's greatest desire for you this day? That we should love our eternal king with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, and with all our strength. And how would you show this love? By remembering him at all times, by cultivating thankfulness for his many blessings, and trusting his good providence for the meeting of our needs, by loving all whose lives intersect our own, by choosing to serve rather than to be served, to be wounded rather than to wound, and by bearing patiently with the failings of others, extending the same kindness, mercy, and compassion that God in Christ has so graciously offered us. We would also love him by serving with faithfulness and due passion in our various vocations, by delighting in all things he has created for our benefit and pleasure, and by caring well for all he has given us to steward. O children of the living God, you would do well to practice your love in these ways today. Do you now possess the needed strength to perfectly accomplish such holy requirements? We do not. We are weak and inconsistent, often buffeted by fear and pride and selfishness. But being impoverished and ill-equipped as we are, we will look to the grace of God and to the sanctifying work of the Spirit to accomplish His purposes in and through us this day as we, in grateful response, seek to choose that which pleases Him. We open our hearts anew to you this morning, O Lord, that the love of the Father and the life of Christ and the breath of the Spirit would quicken within us a greater affection for your ways. Work your will in us, Lord Christ. Hear our prayers. O children of God, casting your cares upon his strong shoulders, now surrender your own agendas for this day and instead be led by the workings of his Spirit. Open your eyes and our hearts Open our eyes and our hearts, O Lord, to your words and truth. May the words of God bring to each of us conviction, challenge, and comfort as our lives and choices this day require. Shape us even now, O Lord. Prepare our bodies for the labor of this day. Give us strength and health to complete them. Prepare our minds for the demands of this day. Grant us clarity, creativity, and discernment. Prepare our souls for those sorrows and joys and celebrations and disappointments we will encounter that every circumstance would only serve to draw us nearer to you. 
May our words, our choices, and our actions today be offered as true expressions of worship. Now you who are loved of God, step forward into this new day, appointed by him, that you might journey through its hours in the peace and the grace and the love of your Lord. Lead us this day, Lord Christ, that we might walk its paths in the light of the hope of our coming redemption. And that should be the posture of our hearts and our minds. Let's pray together. Before we start, this worship service, I would remind you, has never been in all of eternity and will never be repeated. It is unique in all of Christian history. And so we have to take it seriously. We have to be sober-minded. We have to be focused like a laser beam on the audience of one, and that is Holy God, who we're going to talk about today. So let's pray together. Father God, you are indeed holy and perfect and right and true and all the things that I can say, and I, I don't even have enough words to describe you and to worship you. Let our hearts and minds be unified today in recognition that you are a fierce but loving God. You have created all, and you have given us all, and you have rescued us from your own wrath through a design that only you could come up with, and that is through your son, Jesus who purchased our redemption in a perfect way. Help us to study you today. Help us to lean deep into Scripture and see the true God of the Bible. You are worthy of our best effort. You are worthy of all our praise and worship. And so we bow before you today. Um, As far as I'm concerned, I am not worthy to do this, but I I am willing um, and I'm enthusiastic and I feel a joy in doing it in humility and gratitude, but I pray that you would empty me of myself, fill me with your Holy Spirit, use me as a pencil in your hand to glorify your most holy name, Father, because you and you alone are worthy. So I pray that you would lead, guide, direct, and teach us this day, and it's in your name that I pray, amen. All right, so... We're going to be referencing uh, various texts today and going through a progression of attributes, just some major ones. And we'll do the same next week as we wrap this up. But the first one I want to talk about is what Pink and his his, uh, generation, they they use some verbiage that we don't use anymore. And I really like studying. They were quite wordsmiths, right? He calls it the solitariness of God. And so it is in reference to his singular perfect and self-sufficient nature he was is and always will be complete and needing nothing else and he cannot be added to or or changed and theologically for you uh, theology scholars out there this is part of the definition of the immutability of god his unchanging nature um you can see in scripture and it's available to everybody you know there's common knowledge about god it's readily available his wisdom power mercy all the other things but what human can approach having an adequate conception of his being his nature his attributes and his true character pink says this the author comparatively few of those who occasionally read the bible are aware of an awe-inspiring and worship-provoking grandeur of the divine character. I love that he's dripping with sarcasm there. And sometimes I think these older guys like Pink and J.C. Ryle and him, I swear they're still alive somewhere. 
Because it sounds like they're talking about our day, right? So he says, those who occasionally read the Bible, you know, he's saying, if you want to know the true God, you have to dig deep into the scripture, right? And so if you do, you'll become aware of the awe-inspiring and worship-provoking grandeur of his divine character. The more you look, the more in awe you become. And so, uh, but people haven't really changed in the last several several hundred years. Uh, they're still the same, is Pink's point. Um, so I want you to see that God is the very embodiment of excellence, right? In, in his solitary and singular existence, he is excellence personified, right? In Exodus fifteen eleven, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, the little g gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? In Psalm 148, 13, it says this, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. The King James Version says his name alone is excellent. And it says his majesty is above earth and heaven. In King James, it says his glory. So he is excellent. He is glorious. And there is literally none like him except the son is made in his image. But you knew that, right? I know that you knew that. But it's obvious. It's very obvious that God was under no constraint, no obligation, no necessity to create anything. He was complete in in everything. All of creation, therefore, is purely a sovereign act on his part. Why? Why is that? Why do we and anything at all exist? This is one of the those centuries-old questions that the human philosophers have always wrestled with. You know, the human philosophy of mankind is the greatest question they always arrive at is, why do we exist? And they never find the answer, right? It usually just degenerates into life means nothing, right? And it's impossible to answer with satisfaction using human reason. But God gives us the answer, where? Where would you look? In his word, right? God provided us an answer, and it is so simple. For those of us in Christ, it's so basic and fundamental. In Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to open Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So the answer, the answers are, the existence of all things is according to God's will and for his praise and glory. It's simple, uncomplicated, unique. It's excellent. It's solitary. It's very shockingly simple. I want you to um, uh, wear your seatbelt. I'm going to give you a little bit of elevator stomach and kill your pride, okay? <laughs> and I want you to understand something about God and his solitariness, God and his uniqueness, he gains nothing in his essential character from our worship. Nothing. He gains nothing. And that can be a shock, but it's true. He doesn't change based on our worship, our obedience, our works, or anything else we do in this life. It's not like we are feeding him and are able to add to his character. However, as you know, 
we are absolutely expected to glorify his holy name through worship and obedience and all the things we're called to. It's expected and necessary, but it doesn't add a thing to him. It doesn't make him a bigger God. It doesn't change him. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 5, the second and third part, B and C, says this, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So he's held at the highest regard, right? So then the question is, you should naturally segue in your mind to, what about Christ? Our Lord Christ himself, the perfect son of God, made in the image of God, added nothing to God in his essential being, either by what he did or what he said or by what he suffered or by what he created. He did not change God. Now that's a something you'll need to wrestle with, right? That's a shock. Jesus did not change God in his essential being. It's a unique thought, right? It's hard to embrace and say, but it's true. Pink says this, he manifested the glory of God to us, but he added not to God. He didn't make God a bigger God. Remember all the things that Jesus did, right? You know, Isaiah 53 captures the heart of it. And you know these words from verses 4 through 6 and verse 11 in chapter 53 of Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So, I say this to the class all the time. They haven't thrown tomatoes at me yet, but I'm expecting it because I say this all the time. I want you to be biblical scholars. And the way you do it, of course, is you dig deep into Scripture in context. You look at the sentence, look at the paragraph, look at the chapter, look at the book, dig deep, explore the, the Greek, and dig deep. But you also, to be a complete Bible scholar, you also have to note what Scripture does not say. And here in verse 11, it does not say, and God was changed because of all of this. He is solitary in his majesty, unique in his excellency, peerless in his perfections. He sustains all, but in himself, independent of all. He gives to all, but is enriched by none. He doesn't change. No one changed him. And it's fundamental, right? Such a God cannot be found out by just searching your mind or the philosophy of man. He can only be known as he is revealed to the heart by the Holy Spirit through the word. And deeper still, he can only truly be known by those to whom he makes himself known. We'll get more into that. That's a big point, right? And even more, intellect alone cannot suffice. 
the Holy Spirit has to shine in our hearts, not our intellects, in order to give us knowledge of his unique and perfect character. And again, I'll emphasize this is is kind of a hard thought if you hadn't thought about it before. Even the Lord Christ did not change God, but he revealed his character to us, right? And he purchased our salvation. And so what should this do? What should this do to you, knowing all of this? It should provoke you to worship and not make you give up in life. Remember what we say. Theology always leads to doxology, right? So theology, the biblical principles and knowledge of God in truth and context, should always lead us to break out into praise, praise and worship. Theology leads to doxology. And these things that we're talking about should make your heart sing, should not make you discouraged. Um, so we're going to segue into the next attribute, and that is the decree of God. Now, you'll hear me interchange the singular decree with plural decrees. So it's been stated that the decree of God is his purpose or determination with respect to future things. And so you'll find these. They're, they're very rare, but you'll find the literal words decree and decrees in the word of God. But the major references in Scripture make mention of these decrees of God in many passages under a variety of terms and ideas. And there's numerous examples. So why do I say we can confidently talk about this by using the singular? It's because there was only one act of God's infinite mind about all future things. He's not a human that had to go through a progression of thoughts like we do. And so when scripture references God, the word decree is applied to a topic within his eternal purpose. So we use the plural because our minds are only capable of thinking in successive revolutions. As thoughts and occasions arise or in reference to the various objects of his decree. So, you know, when man references God or the decrees issued by man, we have to isolate them one at a time to understand them. God decreed, he made his decree at the creation of the universe, and he only had to do it once. And they are eternal. His decree, his decrees is and are eternal. He doesn't grow wiser in time, and his knowledge is not limited, right? You can see this in so many references. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So he made his decree before any creation. He predestined his people. And, and these words in Scripture delineates his purpose, the purpose of his will, right? Second Timothy 1.9 says... God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, before he allowed time to start for our benefit. And so he is wise, he's perfect, and his decree is perfect, everything that he has ordained. 
Psalm 104, verse, first two parts of verse 24 says, O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. And we know this in Romans 11, uh, verses 33 to 36. You know, Paul, again, this is a, like, I think Nick touched on this too, a prime example of theology of the word breaking out in unrestrained worship, doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so the decree of God is absolutely free. It's absolute and unconditional. He was not influenced by any external cause, therefore considered free. Absolute because there's no higher authority or form of wisdom than God himself. So he's absolute and it's unconditional. His decree is unconditional about how things are to proceed in the universe, in the sum total history of mankind, unconditional, no incident or act of man has ever caused God to suspend his will, his decree. And when he decrees an end, he makes a decree, he has also decreed all the means to that end, his will. So Pastor Nick missing this on Wednesday night, his will accomplishes his decree. And I will, um, I'll just read this from Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So we've seen God is unique. He's solitary. He reigns supreme. He has made a decree for all eternity on how things in the universe are going to proceed. And it has to be coupled with the knowledge of God. That's the next attribute to talk about. And in theological circles, of course, you know this because you guys are smart. This is God's omniscience. He knows everything. All actual, objective, concrete details of the physical universe. He knows all of the actual thoughts and words of all humans. Nothing is unnoticed, hidden, or forgotten by him. He overlooks nothing. Nothing can be concealed from him. I thought about this a long time ago. Many years ago, we were um, at some stupid football game, and there was maybe, I don't know, 80,000 people there. And if you, if you see that many people at once, you could, this really hits home. The magnitude of this, this attribute of God, really hits home. Because you're sitting there, and you see tens of thousands of people, and you think, God authored their life. And he knows from their first breath to their last breath, he knows every thought and everything they'll ever do. 
And it's so stunning to see it in person like that. It just, it's paralyzing to think about it. And then you, you can try, we have no real frame of reference to understand it, but you can extrapolate that to all the billions of humans that have ever been or ever will be. It is incomprehensible, and I am so glad that God is God, right? Um, so he knows everything, and he overlooks nothing, and nothing can be concealed from him. And he says this in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So I want to ask you, is this terrifying to you or comforting to you? Does knowing this lend help to the discipline of trying to live a life of holiness, knowing that God is with you, he is hearing your thoughts? You know, do you think for a second, for a nanosecond, that you have a secret thought life known only to you? You do not. And that is sobering to think about. He knows your thoughts, right? And again, it's, a, it's, it's applicable and it's sobering to hear these words from Christ in Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37. He says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Now he's talking about the lost, mostly. But we don't get that past. We can't just say or think or nurture this fantasy life that we keep in the back of our mind with no consequences. Even though you're in Christ, you know, this should, this should make you realize you're not alone in your thought life. In Ezekiel 11.5, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel... For I know the things that come into your mind. So we're, even though we're in Christ, those of you that are in Christ, even though we're in him, do you think we are prone to the same thought patterns of the flesh that we were subject to before we were saved? Of course we are. We're biological organisms on this side of eternity. And we teeter-totter with righteousness and with the flesh, right? So we are subject to this. But is there any comfort? Is there any hope? Or is all lost within a maze of like repetitious sinful patterns of thinking and acting? Is it all lost? Or is there a hope? You know there's hope. I know you know there's hope. But I want to point it out to you. In Psalm 103, 8 through 14, there is a hope for his own people. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And so I would add in a New Testament way, for those that are in Christ, 
you know, he has, he's merciful and gracious. And so I would ask you this in your prayer life and in your thought life, can you approach such a God as this with confidence and openly? Or do we take the posture sometimes of trying to hide from him? And we inherited that from Adam right in the garden. We think we can hide from God when we are in sin. You don't have to shrink back in embarrassment and fear. He knows the grammar of your heart. He's a God of mercy. Come to him. He knows anyway, right? Isaiah 65, 24 says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And so what does that say about God's omnipotence, his knowledge? He knows everything. And Psalm 147 says, He heals the brokenhearted, and his understanding is beyond measure. So nothing in the future with God is uncertain. His decree does not change. It's not contingent on us as creatures, not contingent on secondary causes. Nothing catches him off guard or causes him to change course. He knows everything already. And every prophecy recorded in his word, all predictions, all foretold history has come and is coming to pass. And so, more specifically, joined together with the perfect knowledge of God is his will. And that is the causative agent of all things, just as we said regarding his decree, right? His will, his perfect, complete knowledge should fill us with comfort, holy awe, and amazement. And again, knowledge leads to worship in this regard too. And, and you have no need. Let go of your pretense with God. He knows your heart. Um, he, like he knows it when I, I try to camouflage my sin or my, my truth, like what I've thought about or done. He knows when I try to use words to camouflage it. I can't, I can't hoodwink him. You know, I can't fool him. You're better off just being straight up honest with God. He knows, he knows your heart anyway. And that should fill us with comfort because, you know, he didn't strike you with lightning at the moment that you sin, you know, because we're in Christ, right? Those of us in Christ. And how do we live these principles out? How, how, do, you, how do you engage in, in this type of uh, relationship with God? It's the gospel, right? Trust, believe, act in obedience, humility, repent. There's freedom in Christ. And the gospel is from, from one end of the Bible to the other. It's in the Old Testament. If you look for it, if you study it, if you pray about it intently, you can see it. Now, Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 is very familiar. People love to quote this, but they often miss the message of it. It says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. You don't have the tools, right? What's the first part of coming to salvation in Christ? You look at his word and trust it. Trust in the Lord. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make straight your paths. You can't make your own path straight. It's only through the strength of Christ. And you have to acknowledge that. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Repent. Repent. You see the gospel being developed in these very words in, in Proverbs, in the Old Testament. Here's the gospel. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. 
Think about these things. Think about it. To trust and believe and repent and acknowledge that it's the gospel. That, that is where we are with it. That's what, that's why it, we commonly say you have to preach the gospel to yourself every day. It brings you back and centers you back on who God is, who Christ is and where you stand. And it's everywhere, everywhere in, in scripture. That's a nice segue to the next topic. And the next topic is extremely timely as we go into Romans 9 through 11. The foreknowledge of God. This is a little different, right? Similar to knowledge in general, but specific. And this attribute is very fundamental. Um, Here's a simple definition. I like simplicity. I'm a simple person, right? Um, A.W. Pink says, that the foreknowledge of God is God's eternal choice of certain ones to be conformed to the image of his son. It's so basic. It's so simple. It's so true. And this is the heart of what we call reformed theology, right? This is the heart of it right here. And you can see it like, again, if you reference Ephesians, the first chapter, it's all in there. You know, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before he created the air that you're breathing, he chose you in Christ for adoption as sons and daughters through Christ. And in him we have redemption in in all of his wisdom and insight, you know, and as a plan for the fullness of time. And he united everything. And you can you can read that your homework. There'll be a test next week quiz on Ephesians one verses three to 14. Bring a piece of paper and a pencil. I'm just kidding. I, um, I'm an easy grader anyway, so you have nothing to fear. Open book test, right? I want to read this from MacArthur. And he has some commentary about the elect exiles from First Peter. And this talks about foreknowledge, predestination, and so forth. So the Greek word for elect is the connotation of the called out ones, to pick out, to select. And it's, it was first applied to Israel. And it says, MacArthur says, here the word is used as a term for Christians, those chosen by God for salvation. The term foreknowledge in Greek is the same as that word used in the original text as foreordained. In these verses, the word does not refer to awareness of what is going to happen. Rather, it clearly means a predetermined relationship in the knowledge of God. God brought the salvation relationship into existence by decreeing it into existence ahead of time, before he created time in the universe. Christians are foreknown for salvation in the same way Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world to be a sacrifice for sins. Foreknowledge means that God planned before, not that he observed before. Thus, God pre-thought and predetermined or predestined each Christian's salvation. This is a holy biblical truth that is above logic, emotion, or the wishful thinking of man. And I ask you this. Now, how are we to respond to that, knowing this? 
And I would submit to you that it should be like the Gentiles who first heard this message, that the Lord had brought salvation to them and not just the Jews. Remember this from Acts 13, verse 48. It says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And so it should make you shout for joy that this was the case, because we, we would never be able to conjure up anything in and of ourselves to generate salvation. It was all of God before he created anything. And so you know this, you know this answer, like how I would ask, how have people gotten it wrong throughout history? In a multitude of ways, right? Arianism, the sinner's prayer, religiousness or legalism, works-based hope of salvation. It's just that when it comes to things like this, people hate God for being God. He is sovereign. Um, and there are, there are a couple emphases I want before we leave this attribute. A couple of things that I want to point out concerning the foreknowledge of God that many people have gotten wrong through ignorance of Scripture, right? The meaning of it and the scope of it. And I want to emphasize to all of you uh, believers, it is our duty to know these things. We are commanded to know these things. It's incumbent on us to know these things deeply. So I want you to understand something really important about the meaning of foreknowledge. If you note, it is never used in the Bible in connection to events or actions. It always refers to persons. It is persons, it is people, specific people that God foreknows, not their actions with regards to choosing his people. Scripture never speaks of repentance or faith as being foreseen or foreknown by God. Now, he truly knows this. He knows everything. But it is never referenced as the grounds for his choosing his people. Never. So, it's not God's foreknowledge of our believing as the cause of our election. Look at it in proper sequence. God's election is the cause and our believing is the effect, not vice versa. It's not that God foresaw that some would be more pliable than others, that they would respond more to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and that God knew that they would believe, or based on some talents that they possess, personality or character traits. That all comes from God anyway. But if we thought that way for a second, it would repudiate the scriptural doctrine of total depravity that says there's nothing inherently good in us that would be holy before God and impress him. If it was, then salvation would rest upon what God discovers in the creature instead of Christ. It's biblically illogical and untrue. And it's ridiculous because he would not find anything good in me in and of myself. Again, I would remind you, foreknowledge is never used for events or actions. It only is a reference to people. And as far as the scope goes, the scope of God's foreknowledge is extended to those whom he has chosen, his people, Christ's gift from the Father, Christians. For a quick example, like this, this is just one small illustration of 
what I was saying that I want you all to be really excellent biblical scholars and put things in context when you read them, right? And this is an area that people get wrong in a major way. The average, like Pink says, uninformed reader often misinterprets the word world in the Bible to mean the entire human race and therefore the entire context and meaning of the passage is normally wrongly understood. So I would encourage you to to really dig deep when you read and study. And so how do you do that? How do you obtain a and maintain a clear and scriptural understanding and view of the foreknowledge of God? And so scripture is clear in all these reference verses and more that believer, God chose you, Christian, in Christ before the foundation of the world and chose you not because he foresaw all that you would do and that you would believe, but chose simply because it pleased him to choose. It's a big mystery. It's notwithstanding our natural unbelief, and it is all to his praise and glory. I look at myself honestly. If you can just be by yourself and meditate on this, that is probably the biggest mystery that I will wrestle with on this side of eternity is knowing myself and what lives between my ears and what I've done with my life, how in the world did God choose me in Christ? I don't get it, but I receive it and I believe it because that's what the Word of God teaches us, right? And so we have to be biblical scholars. Why? You know why? There's a, there's a bunch of reasons, but the best one that I can think of is, you know, Ignorance always gives birth to arrogance. That's You can see this in 1 Corinthians a lot. Paul's always saying, do you not know? You're in error because you do not know. So it's incumbent on us to know these things. Otherwise, we rely on our own thoughts, our own thinking, our own reasoning. It's not always consistent with Scripture. And so our tendency as natural man is that if we start to think of our gifts and talents as being the causative agent in salvation. It's normally the sin of pride and the sin of ignorance taking over and that we think we can impress God with the very giftedness that he bestowed on us. How ridiculous. It's like a child, right? It's like a two-year-old. But the truth is that he is the one who bestows all for his glory and purpose We have no ground for taking any credit to ourselves. It's all of God's grace. And his foreknowledge should provoke us, knowing these things, to trust, believe, repent, and tell yourself the gospel all the time because it brings you back to reality. It brings you into a state of humility, and it pushes you to a life of holiness. Okay? So let's go on a little bit here to our next attribute of, you know, the essence of God, the supremacy of God. Um, It's magnificent. Luther said this to Erasmus. He said, your thoughts of God are too human. You know, we tend to make God in a human sense. Like mostly, if you're like me, you know, when you grow up, your frame of reference for an authority figure like God is usually... An angry coach, an angry teacher, or an angry dad. They're always angry, you know. I don't, 
I guess it was me, right? It's, <laughs> it was me that provoked the anger in all of those people. <laughs> I sometimes think I need to hire a private investigator, go back and find all my teachers and apologize to them one at a time. <laughs> I really should. I just pray that God would make things right, you know. Oh, boy, I would have hated my guts if I was one of my teachers. Anyway, our thoughts of him are, are too human. In, again, in this little book that I love so much, um, the lament of one of the writers of one of the liturgies says, Our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been too small, too few. It's, it's so true, you know. Um, God says this in Psalm 50, verse 21b, You thought that I was one like yourself. It's, it's a shame, isn't it? So, um, instead of scripture, like that, that's our primary, right? Scripture, never depart from it. But what do people tend to use in the world mostly? What resources to define God? And I put that in air quotes. You know, you hear these things, my God would never do this, or, well, I think, or, well, I believe. I want to give you this reminder, and I, again, I, the tomatoes haven't come at me, but I say this a lot. You have to discipline yourself when a topic comes up or a conversation. You have to get away from saying my opinion, what I think, or I believe. You have to marry it to Scripture. The better way to answer any question or debate or statement is by saying Scripture says this. Um, but people use sentimentality, they use their imagination, they use their feels. And so what happens if those are the tools that are employed to try and define the supremacy of God and who God really is? Well, simply put, man becomes the idol in charge and control. And God's wonderful works, such as the atonement, tend to become viewed as directed according to our will and not God's will. And what does that do? What does that do to God? It steals his glory, right? Is that not one of the fundamental sins of the garden? Going back to the garden, that is fundamental to our human nature. To steal God's glory and strip him of his deity, his titles, and instead, being the supreme object of worship makes him an object of contempt. Bitterness sets in, it, particularly if this God that's been defined by man doesn't uh, do what they want him to do, right? And so we know that the unsaved world has wild, untrue ideas about the supremacy of God. What about the professing church? And in your daily life, how do you think of the supremacy of God and how it relates to him? And how do you guard against error? What opposes you in this regard? Um, there's a lot of things, right? When things don't go according to your way and you don't understand what's going on, times, uh, you know, there, there can be little annoyances and there can be big, major, major things, loss and conflict and disease and death and, you know, um, if, if we're not anchored in the supremacy of God, that he is supreme above all, then we tend to drift away and think wild thoughts like the world. 
Again, A.W. Pink says, the absolute and universal supremacy of God is plainly and positively affirmed in many scriptures. And so I would ask you, again, rhetorically, part of your homework, what scripture comes to mind if you, if you had a skeptic in front of you and they just said, look down, oh, God's not in control. You know, he just wound up the universe and walked away. What would you say? What scripture reference? Don't say, well, I think you're wrong, you know, and you'll never get anywhere. I would submit to you this should be right on the tip of our tongue. This should be the chief posture of our heart and our soul and our mind, what David said in First Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 13. He says, it says this, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said this, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now... We thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Now, that's how it's done. That is how it's done. And you can see this also like in the uh, the way that Jesus taught us to pray of God and to God for your petitions. You know, you praise him and then petition him. This is the same way with David, but it is really a, a magnificent illustration of his acknowledgement of the supremacy of God. It's glorious. And uh, I, I, you can read it, you know, in your spare time just for fun, right? So it's, it, no, I'm just trying not to be facetious, but that, is a, that, is, that captures it all right there. And it's a nice um, way to transition over into the sovereignty of God. It's closely related, Right. And so you can define the sovereignty of God in simple terms. This is, simply put, the exercise of his supremacy. He reigns supreme, so he naturally is sovereign over all things. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. This covers a broad range of attributes like we read before. But there's no doctrine more hated by people in the world, by the ones that Pinks calls worldlings, people outside of Christ. And why is that, you know? they it, It's because, you know, Life is hard, right, sometimes. Um, and even his own people sometimes fail in this regard to put him in highest esteem. When, when things of utmost dire consequences happen in your life, it's easy to slip away from this. Um, and you see people in the world, you know, sometimes they acknowledge creation as being generated by God if they deem it good in their opinion. They sometimes acknowledge blessings coming from God, again, if they deem it good in their opinion. 
And they sometimes acknowledge good events, good things that happens, that happen, if they define it as good in their opinion. But they do not acknowledge God being on the throne and to control his creatures as he thinks well without consulting them and letting them pick off the menu of life what they want, how they want it, and to their own personal desires and good. God on the throne is not the God that they acknowledge or love, and they especially hate God when things don't happen according to their judgment, and especially when you see some type of tragedy occur. And it's even hard for us, right? We can admit that. It's hard for us. But where do you go? Where do you go for the healing of that thought, those questions? Go to the word of God, you know, because I would respectfully submit to you. There is perhaps no attribute more comforting to his children because our life can be hard too, right? We have adverse circumstances. We have opposition. We deal with being slandered. We deal with false accusation because if you're in Christ, you're not going to have a life better than your master. And The heavenly father is going to shape you into his image and sometimes that hurts. And so we have severe trials. We have loss. We have disappointment, diseases, aging, death, other things. But, but we believe that sovereignty, sovereignty of God has ordained our afflictions for his purpose and for our ultimate good. We believe that sovereignty rules over every event in our life, every little thing, every big thing. And we believe that sovereignty sanctifies us. It changes us into the image of Holy Christ. And we know that all things work according to the counsel of God's will. All things. It doesn't say some things. It says all things, right? Why? nothing eternal is ever going to be lost in your life. For those of you that are in Christ, he has no plans to harm you, only to make you better. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, after being restored, said in Daniel 4.35 that he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. God is sovereign. And we believe in our doctrinal set of beliefs based on Scripture that he is master over all creation. He has kingship over all the works of his hands, that he sits on the throne and all that that implies. The sovereignty of God is our guarantee that nothing eternal in our lives will ever be lost. And scripture is true where it says that he has no plans to harm us and that we can trust him with our lives. Beloved, listen to me. What is it in your life that causes you not to trust in the sovereignty of God? What is it? Because I know you do. I know I do. I know we all do. From time to time we drift. We're not perfect. And we, again, we teeter-totter with the flesh and with the indwelling righteousness of the Holy Spirit of Christ. What is it that we battle with? Is it worry, anxiety, regret, the need for control? But let me ask you this. Has God broken any promises to you? Show me. Be the accuser. Make your list. Has he reneged on any kind of a one-sided deal that you made? You know, I'm sorry, but not sorry, but it's all indicative of disbelief and lack of trust in the sovereign God. You know, all this like worry, anxiety, the need for control and regret. 
It's all lack of trust in God and disbelief in his sovereignty. I used to spend a lot of mental and emotional energy thinking about regret until I realized what a hideous sin that is before holy God. So I used to say, and you've heard me say this, and it's okay, you can hear it again, right? <laughs> you throw tomatoes if you want. But I used to say, um, wow, you know, I've done so much in my life that I regret. I've hurt so many people. I've lived my life like a Viking. All of you would have hated my guts at one point. You would have looked at me and said, that boy's going to end up in dead or prison or something, you know. So I used to say in my mind, well, if I could go back and do it over, I could do it better, you know. So I would say, well, if I go back to college, maybe I'd start there. And I'd say, no, nah, it's not good enough. I'll go back to high school. And then I'd say, no, 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 elementary. And then I always settle it, second grade. I think that was my last good year of life, right? Sec- <laughs> up to second grade. Everything went downhill after that. I mean, you know, I'm from D.C. and I lived in the state of Northern Virginia. What do you expect? You know, it's the most corrupt place on the planet. So that was my last good year. And uh, so I need to go back and find those teachers and apologize. But anyway, it occurred to me one day and it gave me elevator stomach. What's really going on there is that's me saying that I'm smarter than God, that I could have shaped my life better than he did because he ordained every single thing. He allowed it. He didn't cause it. But he, it's like the, the prodigal story. I mean, it's the story of us all to one degree or another. Mine was big. Man, I make the prodigal look like the Sunday cartoons or something. I mean, it's all ordained by him. And I am not smarter than him. And I would have made a shipwreck of my life. If I had could go back and be in charge of it, it would be a disaster. An, a bigger disaster than it was. <laughs> I'll qualify it. Anyway, all of these things are simply signs of lack of trust in the sovereignty of God that he has you. Name something that can take you out of it. If you're in Christ, you tell me. Tell me the list of things that can snatch you out of his hand. So we express disbelief with excess worry, anxiety, the need to have control always, and nurturing this secret fantasy life about regret. And it gets really hideous, that the regret, you know, and it can apply to everything, everything in your life, you know, couples and, you know, it gets really ugly sin. Um, So anyway, I don't want you to have that. I want you to trust God. Um, And I hope that it's readily apparent that God is quite incomprehensible, but comprehensible given what he's given. We, if we had a glimpse of the true depth of God, it would probably evaporate our souls. It would probably destroy us. But he's given us everything that we can digest. It's right there for us. And so A.W. Pink says again, it is not a reason why we should desist from reverent inquiry and prayerful strivings to apprehend what he so graciously revealed to us of himself in his word. Even though we know he is an incomprehensible God, he has given us that which we can 
understand, and we should never stop looking at his character. Charles Spurgeon said this. He did a sermon on Malachi 3.6, and he says this. These are beautiful words by the Prince of Preachers. He says, The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the doings, and the existence of the great God, which he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can comprehend and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-contentment. To go on our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. So the study of the attributes of God is a lifelong, and I would, I would encourage you, it's an eternity long essential that we cannot and will not ever conclude God is God, and unless we're informed about him from Scripture, we'll stray. Unless we meditate on who he is daily, our thoughts tend to turn inward. And the more we see the true God of the Bible, the more everything makes sense in life, the more you can cope with this life. This is a primary pathway also to leading a life of holiness. It's a pride killer. It's an arrogance crusher. It's a gratitude expander. And it's an awe-inspirer to think that this God, this very God, at some point before he invented time, before he created the sun and the moon and the stars through Christ, he hyper-focused on you as an individual and he created you. And he wired you specifically the way that he wanted you to be. And he knew every thought you'd ever have and every word you'd ever say. And he knew at such a time as it pleased him to open your eyes to the gospel and save you through Christ. He knew all of that in eternity past. And it is amazing. It's, it should inspire awe. And knowing these things needs to give birth to trust in all caps, trust of him. And it should provoke in you humility, peace, patience, kindness, all the things, right? All those things get promoted past the negatives of the flesh when you examine the deep essence of God and you realize he saved you from himself. It's all but indescribable, right? He's fierce. He is holy. He is justice. And he is mercy. And so a true apprehension of God's attributes is incredibly sobering. I mean, you think about how fierce he is. You know, he personally killed Aaron's sons, Noah's community, Sodom and Gomorrah, men, women, and children of Korah, Pharaoh and his army, and it pleased him to crush his own son. So this God, this holy, perfect God, will stop at nothing to defend his holy name. He crushed his own son, and it pleased him to do it, to defend his holy name. And so, for us, 
being simple creatures. We need to trust and believe and repent and cry out to him. He is merciful, loving, and kind, and he will do it. He will save you. So we're going to press on together. There's much more, and this is a caveat too, as you've already begun to understand. We cannot possibly cover all the attributes. I'm just, it's like skipping a rock over the water. I'm just hitting one here and there and not even very deep. Um, but we have the rest of eternity and, and we'll, we'll get on with it. But we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up back again next week. And so, um, I just want to close us in prayer and, um, and we'll again get together next week and finish up our discussion. And again, I think this is really, really incredibly timely and it should give us a better apprehension of Romans 9 through 11 and Isaiah as we go through this to have a reminder of who God really is. Um, So let's pray together and then we'll, we'll close with some worship too. So let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God. You have not changed, nor will you ever. And you have decreed to give us a life and an existence and a rescue from your holiness. You are the three times holy God. There is none like you. You are infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, and yet loving, fierce, and kind. Um, We bow before you today, and we... um, love life through the Spirit. We have our struggles with sin, and, and I hope and pray that we have a healthy, healthy, balanced life of repentance. We look forward to seeing you face to face, and we acknowledge that uh, it's by your sovereign choice that we come to faith in Christ. And so through him, we are more than conquerors, um, We are your children and you no longer regard us with uh, a righteous wrath that would be completely appropriate. And so I thank you for this study today. I thank you for everyone that's gathered here and everyone that will hear this. I pray that they would be blessed, them as individuals and their families, through Christ and through the gospel. And I just pray that uh, your word would resonate in our hearts for all of eternity, we would celebrate your essence accordingly. We thank you for this time together, and I pray that um, it would be glorious again in your name. Amen.